Welcome to Ancient Answers, the program that discusses modern issues by looking to the ancient civilizations that came before us. In this very special episode, myself and Gordon continue our interview with Leanne Harris, published author and history presenter, comparing and contrasting Athens and Sparta with a particular emphasis on the roles of women in both societies. The thing is, the Athenians needed the Spartans on a number of battlefronts but when they knew that they would be employing their Spartan compatriots to help them, they did it kind of reluctantly and almost with a sigh of, oh, we got to deal with the Spartans. <laughs> because to the Athenians, they were annoyed at the Spartans for being so shallow-minded, so one-track mind. It really bothered the Athenians that the Spartans did not try to elevate themselves or well-round themselves with any other business except for warfare. Mm -hmm. So even though the Spartans, and they do, come off as sort of the quintessential warrior, the Athenians looked at them a little sideways like, okay, they're, they're good at that one thing, but they're really not, they're really not well, they're not, they're not real men because they haven't explored all facets of, of humanity. Okay. So yeah, that it, yeah. the, the Athenians were snobby about that. They're not going to tell the, the Spartans that because they need them. <laughs> yeah. They really need them. So they're like, okay, after the battle's finished, then we'll really let loose what we really think of you. But, <laughs> but they did um, grudgingly go into battle with them because they need them as great backup. So they will win the day. Yeah. But there was that underlying uh, frustration and underlying uh, prejudice that the Athenians felt that they were just better. They, they, they just knew more about everything. <laughs> and they kind of did. I was going to say, it's a pretty fair argument to make, though, because, well, like you said, I mean, we, you can list all these things that we have from Athens, and there's not just the physical inventions that you mentioned, but there's also the idea of democracy. And, Gord, you talk about scientific method, and um, and then we talk about theater and music. And so it's not just actual physical inventions, but it's sort of methods of philosophy as well as philosophy itself. You know, there's these abstract concepts that have just lasted through thousands of years because of Athens and Sparta. They were really good at stabbing. Yeah. <laughs> so what were you going to say? Yeah, there, yeah. And I was just saying you're right. It's the it's the power of a powerful idea. So mm -hmm. when they, you know, the Athenians definitely debated, they definitely discussed things. They had public uh Conver you know, conversations about issues that we would consider philosophy. And that was a driving intellectual engine to their culture that they passed on to the rest of the world. Thankfully, we have a great deal of Greek writing that has survived, even though there's been great losses as well. There's been enough of a body of writing that has survived that passed on that we, we would even come back to it 2,500 years later, like this show, and say, you know, there's a lot of our contemporary problems we have today that were the same problems that were dealt with by ancient Greeks. We talk about Romans and so on. But the interesting thing about the Spartan is, other than fighting really well, they knew the art of killing and defense. They left nothing else. We don't even know really a lot, relatively speaking, of what their even the religious views were. We have an idea. There's been some writing, but the writing didn't come from them. It came from 
Athenians, and another city that often gets overlinked, and that's Corinth. If it hadn't been the fact that Corinth was utterly destroyed in a later war, we forget that the third major city-state in that area was Corinth, and that it was right between Athens and Sparta geographically, and it has an interesting history. Uh, the number of Greek writers that actually came from Corinth is, is remarkable, but the fact is they were like the ping-pong between these two extremes of cultures. Uh, and, and that's why I think there will always be a perennial interest in discussing the nuances of Athenian culture versus what we understand of the Spartan culture. Because it's true, the Spartans come across as the biggest, toughest, you know, physical soldiers of the ancient day. We know that they have a legacy uh, burned into the minds of, of all time about Thermopylae and the defense there against the great Persian hordes. But in the end, in the end, Athens defeated Sparta militarily. It took about eight generations, but they eventually figured it out uh, after you know a disastrous Phil Peloponnesian War. But in the end, it was the Athens that actually defeated and, and in a sense destroyed Sparta. And, uh, and that's the legacy that came on is that even if Athens had disappeared, if we had still had their books and their writings, they would still be an influence on us today because they represent this huge body of human thinking. We also know, not to jump too far ahead of history, but they had by far the greatest influence on Rome and the Roman way of looking at the world. And of course, Rome went on to conquer the Mediterranean world very effectively. And in a sense, we inherited the Greek ideas also by way of our inheritance through Roman uh, imperialism. Mm -hmm. Anyway, just my little, my little bit there. Well, if we wanted to sort of take a look at something that the ancients still struggled with and what we're still struggling with in Athens, it's kicking the vending machine when the product won't come out. Because do you know that the Athenians really? invented the first vending machine, the first coin-operated vending machine? Really? <laughs> yeah. It was a, um, it's a bronze pot. It kind of goes from up, it'll leave up to probably your knee it was put into the agora which was the, the main market and it was filled with water every day and you would put a drachma or a, a coin into the side inside there was a lever that would sort of move with weight so that the weight of the coin would push this lever down that would open up a spigot and give you a cup of water <laughs> It was a, a coin-operated vending machine, and uh, you know you can't you can't put a price on that kind of cleverness. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, well, I've I've read as well about um, it's it's been a long time since I've looked into this. I don't know if it was Athenian or which culture it was from, but uh, of a similar sort of automated puppet show where it was all just mechanical gears and pulleys and levers, and you just Pulled on this one lever and it would send the whole thing operating. But so it's but it's it's amazing just how clever some of these inventions yeah. were in these devices. You're right. They did invent the marionette puppet. Yeah. And the marionette puppet uh, was primarily used in the marketplace to make fun of political figures. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So, yeah. So some guy would be there with like you know the equivalent of a Trump you know or or something puppet making fun and then they would kind of pack it up and go to the next. And that's often how they educated their masses on, on the political 
realities of their day to make it kind of fun into a, into a puppet show. Well, I know a lot of a lot of the plays that they did back then. I mean, we we only have so many comedies and tragedies from ancient Athens, but there's a lot of them that would have had to do with the politics of the day and making fun of certain figures and political political figures and orators and what have you. So I guess it was uh, the same sort of deal. Yeah, yeah. I know uh, that Sophocles reported to have written about 90 plays in his life, of which only the seven today survive. Yeah. So you yeah. imagine how much content and uh, and topic matter that was filled because you know it, we have to remember they didn't have Netflix they didn't have television or radio it was their entertainment uh, obviously they would spend less time on it than I think a modern consumer would but it was their way to communicate out there I, I actually believe that actually the whole idea of theater has a lot more impact on human culture than people realize because what are what are human beings but fundamentally a storytelling creatures right storytelling in whatever form it is whether it's a spoken word or it's a movie or it's a play or puppet show is a fundamental characteristic of the human being the human condition and the fact that the greeks particularly invested in that kind of art form more than really any other culture during its at the same period I think gave us a jump start to where we express so many of our ideas through cultural presentations. Uh, they could be fiction, obviously, but those stories would represent themes, ideas, archetypes that we still use today. I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's remarkable to see that development. And in cultures that had suppressed something as simple as live theater often are ones that become quite stagnant when it comes to any other artistic or literary output it, it seems to be a great throttling of the human of the human expression and i the the fact that the athenians openly embrace that is a legacy that actually echoes right down to our day we enjoy show you know movies and shows and plays literally because they set a stage pun intended to explore the human condition yeah mm -hmm. yeah no that's a very good observation and you know i think that with all this wonderful talk about theater and entertainment we should move on to the spartans who did absolutely none of that kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> i'm um, for the spartans <laughs> yeah we've, we've talked we've talked bad about them enough so how about we do some compare and contrast between athens and sparta so since so we so just before we move on to the Spartan, let me just say a couple more things about Athenian women oh, so sure, yeah. that we'll um, better uh, make a comparison. And with that, I also want to say one more last thing about uh, Athenian culture. I, I think you can say that intelligence is contagious, right? And I think the Athenians embodied that that when someone has a great idea, they start sharing it around and then people are brainstorming. And so I think you have in Athenian culture, one of the best brainstorming sessions ever, where people start to say something, add to it, and then you get what, what the, the, the fruits of all of that, that great thought. So they are not operating in an island, they're sort of unto themselves. They, they, they shared the light of, of their enlightenment around and, and you'll see that clearly. Now, Going back just a few things about Athenian women, once an Athenian woman married, 
she was pretty much put into the house and was looking after uh, hearth and home, family life, raising of the children. And she also was extremely restricted. An Athenian woman could only leave the house under three uh, occasions, and in all three occasions, she had to ask the permission of a male. If she is not married, of course, she's going to have to ask her father's permission. When she is married, she has to ask her husband's permission to leave the house. And if he is not around, either at war or deceased, then it will default to her oldest son if he's of age, or it will default to her brother-in-law. Now, if she's allowed to leave the house, she can go to three places. She can go visit her girlfriends, only female. There can be no other male in the house that she is visiting. She can go to the temple to do her, her religious um, votive offerings, and she can also attend funerals. And because these three, especially going to a funeral, was the one activity that she could do unrestricted, that's why the ancient uh, Greek women went so often to funerals. It wasn't necessarily that they even liked the person who had died, that they even know the person who had died, but it was one way that they could literally get out of the house. And I see this even coming up into our modern days, that in the Mediterranean culture, especially in the, the Greek culture, lots of women attend funerals. They attend funerals as their obligation because they feel it's the right thing to do, because they're so used to being uh, they're so used to doing that as a way of, of um, escaping and, and doing something that's just entirely on their own. In the cases where you leave the house, you are given an escort. An escort has to go with you. And this escort operates more of a chaperone where, you know, they'll kind of keep you in check if you try to, to run away. In the event of shopping, an upper uh, an upper middle class or um, more in uh, more wealthier Athenian woman would not typically go out to the market to do her own shopping. Either the vendors would come to the house and she would pick what she wants or she'd send her servant out. However, there are going to be always those who try to, you know, break the rules and do their own thing. So if they do go out to the market, they have to have the escort with them and permission from the male head of house. But she's not going to touch anything with her right hand. They actually took their shawls and they, their, their cheaton, and they sort of uh, covered it up and, and uh, were, were quite sort of swathed in, clo in, in clothing. They often covered their face. They covered their arm so they wouldn't expose any body part. And then it was the servant who would do all the, the picking. So very restrictive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, we we talked about the theater earlier, and it's it's important to note that uh, the theater was kind of like the Olympics. It was a male-only thing. It was only male spectators. It was only male actors. So it was all men that played female parts, and it was only men who were allowed to go watch. So yeah, uh, it's it's unfortunate how restrictive things were. You got something there, Gordon? It, yeah, it's it sometimes. I mean, it's obviously different from the Greek cultures today, which we we know here in the 21st century. But I always have thought in my years of, of reading and understanding about Greek history and the culture, the kind of dichotomy of having a culture that had remarkable intellectual freedom and for men and the, the thoughts and even the philosophy that emanated from the men writers and stuff. And yet they were a society that seemed to also 
not exactly treat women the way we would consider a fair and equitable way in our, from our point of view here in the 21st century. And it's always uncomfortable because I enjoy Greek history, but I also know in the back of my head, half the population was kind of suppressed in that culture. And uh, it's, it's one of those, uh, again, a dichotomy. You have a value on one side, but you have a deficit on the other side that doesn't necessarily have to be there. But we all learn. I mean, we benefit from the thoughts the Athenians particularly uh, expressed and shared over the years. But it is interesting that we have such a different perspective and thankfully a different perspective on the way women and the roles. But it's not that long ago, even in, let's say, our North American cultures, to realize that going back to the 1950s and 1940s, 1930s, there were restrictions on women that were assumed in our society. They couldn't do certain things. They couldn't, I mean, I know from my grandmother, uh, same, you know, your grandmother, uh, who was, you know, not allowed to drive a car because women just didn't drive cars. Well, you think about that's ridiculous, uh, but we still have only emerged relatively recently from the fog of a gender designation of, of fixed roles. Society. Now, there's, we've got a little bit more fluidity today. Uh, we'll see whether our society benefits better for it. But it's always been that funny thing that the, the Athenians and the Greek ancient Greek cultures themselves were highly um, male-orientated. Which is very yeah, which is very ironic because their gods and goddesses don't reflect that. I mean, their goddess of war and wisdom is a female, Athena, or the Romans would call Minerva. So it doesn't follow that they instituted that in their culture, but that was part of their mythology, which was kind of interesting. What about the Greek cultures over on the? Uh, the uh, western side of what is now Turkey, of Anatolia. I mean, there was a number of Greek-speaking states there. Did they operate more or less the same way, or was some some variation between the roles of men and women seen there? I think they were more casual about it. Uh, that's my speculation. I, I guess I'm going on that one because the great uh, philosopher and debater and writer Aspasia was from that coast of Turkey called Miletus. She arrived in Athens to the great shock and horror of the Athenians because she was female but and a foreigner, but she came to Athens and set up a school of philosophy. She set up a salon, a public salon, where she took in female students, which would have been a little bit of a um, deviation. Obviously, some very open-minded families allowed her to teach their daughters but even more remarkably she was the instructor for males and some of her famous students were Socrates. Socrates said that Aspasia taught him the art of eloquence or deconstructive debating and also Pericles uh, attended her salon and later they became a couple. It has been even suggested that the great funeral oration by Pericles was written by Aspasia. Gord made the point earlier about how um, Athens is so renowned back then, but especially now, for being so forward thinking in so many ways. And there's so many different 
inventions and philosophies and, and methodologies and, and ways of thinking that we have and we use to this time. So that was really well done. And then you have the equality in the way that they treated women, which was not so great and not as forward thinking as you might expect from uh, that kind of society. But then we have the Spartans who weren't as good at the, the forward thinking and the enlightenment and the education and whatnot. But I think an argument can be made, treated their women a bit better. They, from the research I've done, it suggests that Spartan women had more rights and freedoms than most ancient women did. So I find that interesting dichotomy where you got Athens, really good thinkers, not great with women. Spartans, not great thinkers, but better with equality and women's rights. Not great still, but better. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd, I'd say that's, that's a fair statement. Yes. So on that note, how about we switch gears over to Sparta now? So we'll get into a little bit of Spartan education. We'll just start from the ground up and right at the beginning. So what, what kind of stuff are we looking at for Spartan education, uh, boys and girls? All right, well, in a, as we probably mentioned, the Spartan society is extremely militaristic. That was the raison d'etre of their existence, just to be the best warrior possible. Now we take a look at just both uh, male and female babies. When a Spartan child is born, the elders are going to kind of look at it and decide whether this baby's going to make it or not. If it's defective, weak, sickly, failure to thrive, they will not bother with that baby. They will leave it out for exposure. Mm -hmm. Some have even claimed that they are thrown off cliffs. I think that's a little debatable, but it has been said that that's what happens but nonetheless uh the baby won't make it they they will practice infanticide if the baby is healthy and strong then it will be raised boys and girls live with their mother until the age of seven in that home the the fathers do not live with the family they live with their other soldier compatriots in their in their barracks mm -hmm. At the age of seven, a young boy is removed from his um, home, from his mother, and then the formal education starts. They spend 90% of their life outdoors. They are only given a loincloth and a blanket. Their, their chest is typically exposed. That is the only clothing they're going to have for about, you know, the next 10 or 20 years. And they have to learn all kinds of deprivation they're going to learn how to fight how to struggle how to cheat how to steal it's they're always kept hungry they're never fed enough and they're kept hungry so that they can learn how to steal food now stealing of course is is a great thing that's how you learn stealth you will be however greatly punished if you are ever caught stealing yeah. because the greatest problem is, or the, the sin is not in the deed the sin is getting caught so you'll be flogged you'll, you'll be whipped if you're caught stealing because you got caught yeah you are encouraged to fight with your schoolmates you're encouraged to bully there was constant hazing going on it was an absolute survival of the fittest and they were, of course, taught all the military arts, and that pretty much construed their, their the, the great bulk of their education. 
Now, it wasn't that they could not read or write. They did spend some time on literacy. And they did spend some time on singing and dancing, believe it or not, but not a lot. I think it would be probably 5% compared to 95% military arts. Yeah. Well, Definitely not enough for the Athenians to be impressed by anything. <laughs> well, from, from the research that I've done, it suggested that dancing, dance, singing not so much, but dancing was taken relatively seriously because um, they incorporated it as a martial skill because it was yeah. all about dancing. They trained dancing to be all about graceful movements and mobility because if you're fluid and you're mobile and you're graceful, that can make you an excellent soldier. Absolutely right. Yeah. Um, so the boys, from now on, the boys are going to be living in their barracks until the age of 15. And we'll learn all the skills that we've mentioned. Uh, they are going to learn the exercising, the war, the dancing, fighting, stealing, lying, cheating, and killing. Now, at the age of 12, they are given a mentor. And this is uh, an older male, an, uh, a more experienced soldier, and this is uh, institutionalized uh, pedophilia. The the 12-year-old Spartan boy and this male com, older male companion are going to be legally paired up to be a um a couple. They're going to be a it's, it's going to be a pedophilic style of relationship. And this older mentor is going to groom the Spartan boy in all aspects of his life. He will be the lover, he'll be the uncle, he'll be the father, he'll be the one who will teach him the art of war, the tricks of the trade, but also initiate him sexually. And that will go on until the young boy is 18. Now, it has been asked, do the Spartans sort of have a graduation? Like, how do you know you've sort of fulfilled your training, if you will? And you'll probably read that there is some kind of an initiation or some kind of a ceremony. And here's what really kind of has to happen. There is essentially a graduation. It is, a, it is almost like the Spartan version of their own Olympics, where all of the young boys have to show their skills. They are judged by the community. They're judged by their peers, whether they sort of make it or not. They have to do well in the athletic events. They have to show their skill in fighting, wrestling, hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's sort of like their own version of a gladiatorial game, where the ones who are left standing are sort of the graduates. Hmm. There's also another element there, and that is they have to do a killing. They have to kill. Yeah. You might compare this to a drive-by shooting. And their victims are the helots. This is the helot, right? Yeah. Yeah. Their victims are, are the helots, which are the, the, the peasants, the, the peasant class of that society. Sometimes the helots are their own servants in their own house or who work their own fields. And that's, that's desirable that you can kill someone that you know because then it means you'll never shy away from that in battle, mm -hmm. that you will not be sentimental or, or, or second-guess that. So once you have taken these steps, if you have sort of made it, well, then you are now part of uh, Spartan society and you are given 
full and equal opportunity under Spartan law. You are you're a citizen. If you do not make it because you're not as good as the other boys or you maybe hesitate at the killing of an innocent helot, well, then you are not allowed to proceed. You will lose your status. You'll be flogged. You'll be publicly flogged and humiliated. And then you are reduced down to the working class Spartan. Yeah, because Spartan citizens were all, they were all Spartan male citizens were soldiers. And then there were the tradesmen, artisans, your blacksmiths and farmers and what have you that did all that stuff so that male citizens could fight, basically, right? Right. Yeah. The male, what is considered a citizen is, as you said, a warrior. Mm -hmm. Any other individual in the trades or in farming is low class and does not have status in Spartan society. Yeah. And the lowest of those would be the farmers who, who are those who plow the fields and they would be the helots. They would be comparable to a peasant, you know, in medieval Europe. And they were without status and literally uh, fodder. Yeah. They, 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 they could be, their lives could just be picked off at, at the whim of, of the Spartans. They had absolutely no recognition under the law wow so very different from athenian society once again the differences between athens and sparta are just too numerous for two short episodes please join us next week as gordon and myself conclude our interview with leanne harris on this topic thank you very much for listening to ancient answers if you enjoyed this episode yeah you can find more on spotify Please follow, like, and share to help the channel grow, and check out our Facebook page for more information, as well as some fun history memes.